If you would, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21. I know a number of you follow the same Bible reading plan that I do. Uh, uh, Robert Murray McShane's Bible plan. And uh, so in that plan, I've been in the major prophets for quite a while, since May, I believe. I'm almost through Ezekiel now. The main thing that we find as we read through these long, dense books in the middle of our Bible are words. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel speaking God's words to God's people. Words of salvation and words of judgment. But have you ever noticed in reading through these books that it's not just words that communicate. Sometimes God asks them to perform very unusual actions. Actions that speak as loudly as their words. Actions that are actually intended to draw attention to the words that they have spoken. For example, Isaiah walked around naked for three years. Kind of an unusual action that God told him to do. What was it meant to symbolize? It symbolized the fact that one day, Assyria would haul Egypt in Cush off to exile in the buck. Jeremiah also performed a number of symbolic actions. God once asked him to bury his underwear in the ground and then to dig them up again later. And guess what he found? Dirty drawers. <laughs> Big surprise. But this action spoke a word. Israel had become polluted by their idols. Once God asked Ezekiel to use a brick to build a model of a siege work, which pointed to the coming Babylonian siege of Jerusalem. I'm trying to picture what he would have used today. Maybe a set of Legos or Tinker Toys or something along those lines. Well, our passage in Matthew 21 this morning, at one level, is simply recounting the events that happened when Jesus finally arrived in Jerusalem. He rode into town on a donkey. He turned tables over in the temple. He cursed the fig tree. But at another level, we find symbolic action in each of these three events. These actions speak as loudly as His words. Or maybe even louder than his words, because in each of the actions, they point back to so much of what the prophets have already said. So they carry a lot of freight with them. What do his actions say? What do these three events in Matthew 21 communicate to us? And how are they trying to get our attention? 
Let's begin by reading this passage before we attempt to answer some of these questions. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Matthew 21, I'm going to be reading verses 1 to 22. Jesus has been saying for a long time now that they're going to Jerusalem. Now they arrive. This is what it says. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on their cloaks and sat on them. Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And he entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. <clears throat> if these events are as I believe they are, three symbolic actions... What are they communicating? If these actions are meant to get the attention of the original audience as well as to get our attention, what do we need to pay attention to? 
At a fundamental level, I think these actions are communicating that Jesus has authority, an authority from heaven, an authority from God. And the reason I think that is what happens in the next paragraph that I did not read. When the chief priests and the elders respond to these events, these things, these actions that Jesus has just performed. In verse 23, they say to Him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? I won't go into the dialogue between Jesus and the religious leaders this morning. Suffice it to say, I think the clear answer to their question, by what authority are you doing these things, is that His authority is from heaven. It is from God. It is not an authority from man. It is God's own authority. But let's get more specific. What does Jesus have the authority to do? What do His actions specifically symbolize? And why does it matter for us? How should we respond? Let's look at these three actions in a little closer detail to find three truths about Jesus and His authority and three ways that we can respond or that we should respond to Him. Let's begin with His ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. That's the action. What does the action symbolize? I believe it teaches us that Jesus is the King who comes to save His people. Jesus is the King who comes to save His people. In the Old Testament, there are hints that the Messianic King will come on a donkey. But the main reason we know this action points to the King who comes to save His people is because of the editorial comment that Matthew gives us in verse 5, which is a direct quote from Zechariah 9. I want to read the full quote um, from Zechariah 9, verse 9. It says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is He, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. In Zechariah 9, if you go back this afternoon and read through that chapter, you'll see very clearly that the coming king is a conquering king. He will bring peace, but that peace will be on the other side of war. Peace after all of God's enemies have been defeated. Tyre and Sidon will be struck down, we're told in the first part of the chapter. Philistia will perish. And only then, when the war is over, will all of the weapons of war be no more. There will be peace. But it's interesting. This conquering king that is spoken of in Zechariah 9, how does he come into town? Not on a war horse. Instead, on a donkey. I mean, 
I know we don't live on farms here, but I was reminded of this this week at First Friends on Thursday, right out, right outside of our building. These little donkeys, I pet two of them. They are not very threatening. I mean, if I would have sat on them, I think I would have broken their back. What is Jesus doing riding into Jerusalem on a donkey? What does it symbolize? Was He actually a conquering king? Did He actually come to overthrow Israel's enemies? Well, yes and no. We'll see soon enough that when Jesus comes again, He will certainly strike down all of His enemies. And we're going to see over the next few weeks that as He arrives in Jerusalem, He is confronting His opponents head on. No more Mr. Nice Guy. No more secrets about His identity. It is a full-on confrontation to those who oppose Him. But, this conquering King came to conquer in a way that nobody expected. At His first coming, He came to save His enemies. Not to defeat them. And who are His enemies? In our sin, we are all enemies of God. It's not just Tyre and Sidon. It's not just Philistia. It's not just the Roman government. It's not whoever it is out there, in our sin, all of us are enemies of God and Jesus came to save us from our sins. That's why He came in to Jerusalem. To go to the cross as He's predicted three times would happen when He arrived at Jerusalem. To die for our sins and to be raised from the dead on the third day. He came so that His enemies could be reconciled to God redeemed from their sin, and rescued from death. The conquering king came first, humble and riding on a donkey, then dying on a cross before raising from the dead, before coming in judgment on His enemies. That is what His action symbolizes. So how should we respond to this truth? We should rejoice and believe right now. Rejoice and believe right now. That Jesus is the King. That's what we should believe in and rejoice in. And that this King came at His first coming to save us from His sins. Zechariah told us very plainly that, that we should rejoice when He came. And so it's no surprise that that's what the crowds were doing when He rode into Jerusalem. Crying out, using the words of Psalm 118, Hosanna, or literally, save us, we pray. Now the crowds didn't understand all that Jesus came to do. But they did believe that Jesus was the promised King and that He had come to save them. So they cried, Hosanna! Save us! We pray. What more important prayer could a person ever pray? We understand more than they did. We, knew, we know that Jesus came to save us from our sins. That 
He came to conquer the enemies of sin and death first on the cross and through His resurrection. That's why He rode into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday. And so we should believe this, that Jesus came to save us. We should cry out, save us, we pray. And then we should rejoice. We should have joy in this salvation. And we should do all of this right now. I'm not just talking about theological, religious truths that you all know. I am saying we should respond right now in this way. Why? Because Jesus is coming again. And when He returns, the offer of salvation will be over. At His first coming, He came in humility to save. But this narrative quickly hastens on and shows us that at His return, He will be coming in judgment. So we've got one symbolic action that speaks of His salvation. We've got two now that speak of His judgment. The second symbolic action happens when Jesus turns over the tables in the temple. This teaches us that Jesus comes to clean house. Jesus comes to clean God's house specifically. He came into Jerusalem as a saving king. He will come again as a righteous judge. And when he, does, when he comes, He is going to sweep the house clean. The temple of God, the people of God will be pure and holy, undefiled. The Old Testament spoke of a day when God would come to clean house to cleanse the temple. And the religious leaders of Jesus' day were ready for some cleanup, I think. They would have loved to have the riffraff removed from the temple courts. But Jesus' action at the temple shows us that the cleanup that they wanted was going to happen in a way very differently than they expected. The Jewish people thought that they were people of privilege, especially those who were in positions of power. And they thought that the Gentiles and the outcasts, the blind and the lame and the children, all of those people were nobodies. But when Jesus turns over the tables in the temple, He turns the tables on them. The setting of this scene is really important if we want to grasp what's going on. So let's sit down in the classroom for just a few minutes. Everything that is happening in this paragraph takes place in the temple complex. Imagine a 33-acre temple complex. And about a mile around that perimeter is an area called the Court of the Gentiles. That's where all that's going on here is taking place. This was the area where the Gentiles could come to worship Israel's God. And what's likely happening is that there are people in the Court of the Gentiles who have set up shop 
to buy and sell animals to people, pilgrims, who are coming for the Passover so that they will have sacrifices to offer. And let me just say that there's nothing wrong with buying and selling animals for sacrifice. So why is Jesus so upset? Why is He turning over their tables? It's because the people with power and position in the temple are taking advantage of those without that same power and position. They're taking advantage of what Jesus calls the little ones that we've been learning about over the last few weeks. How are they doing this? Well, for one, they're taking advantage of the Gentiles by using their space in the court of Gentiles which was supposed to be a place for prayer for them, they're using that space for the buying and selling of animals. I was at a football game yesterday, and I saw something in the parking lot that is critical for football. A food truck selling chicken wings. Willie's wings. My mouth was watering for the wet lemon pepper ones. Wings and football go together. They help people to participate in the main event, which is playing football. But imagine for a moment, if Willie decided to drive his food truck right onto the 50-yard line of the field, he would no longer be helping the main event, which he was doing yesterday. He would instead be hindering the main event. That's what's happening in the court of the Gentiles. They took something critical to worship, buying animals for sacrifices, and they drove it on to the field. But not just any field. They weren't getting in the way of the important people's worship. They were only getting in the way of the Gentiles' worship. And those people really don't matter. At least not to them. And neither do the poor people. You see, it's likely that they're also ripping off the poor people through the exchange rate or through the price of the livestock itself. It's interesting that Matthew only mentions the seats of those who sold pigeons. Not the seat of those who sold lambs and bulls. Right? I mean, not that kind of livestock. Who bought pigeons? The poor people <laughs> bought pigeons. And they're being ripped off as they come to worship God. So Jesus turns over the tables and He says, it is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. This line is so critical for interpreting this passage. Den of robbers. What is meant by that? It's a reference specifically to Jeremiah 7. And if we're going to understand why Jesus is so hot right now, we have to understand what Jeremiah 7 says. In Jeremiah 7, Jeremiah, like Jesus, is at the temple prophesying against the powers that be. 
And he says that the people of God in his day have become robbers. How have they become robbers? They're oppressing the sojourners who are traveling to Jerusalem to worship. They're oppressing the fatherless, the children. They're oppressing the widows. They're keeping the little ones down. They're shedding innocent blood. They're worshiping false gods. They're robbing the weak. And they're robbing God of worship. Sound a little bit like what's going on in Matthew 21? Where do robbers normally hide? Think of a western or think of a bank heist. You know, they're trying to hide out from the law. The posse. Where do they hide? Their getaway house in the woods. That cave that's down by the river. But the robbers in Jeremiah's day, they were hiding in plain sight. They were the officials working at the temple. The temple had become their den, their hideout. And this is the really sick thing. They thought their association with the temple meant that they must be in God's good graces. They must be safe from God's judgment. We're robbers who were seeking refuge in their religious rituals. Jeremiah says, you're not going to be hiding out there for long. If you repent, he's very clear, You can remain in God's house. But if you do not repent, you will be removed. And not only that, this house will actually be removed. Do you see the connection with Jesus turning over the tables in the temple? He is saying with His actions what Jeremiah said with His words. The people running the show at the temple are robbers. When Jesus heals the blind and the lame, what's their attitude toward them? When the children cry out, Hosanna, they're indignant. When the poor come to buy pigeons for their sacrifice, they rip them off. When the Gentiles from the nations come to worship the one true God, they displace them. They're robbing people at the temple while at the same time seeking refuge through their religious rituals in the temple. They think that their association with the temple, their leadership role, their position in the temple makes them safe. Jesus' action is putting them on notice. This will not be a refuge for robbers for long. They will be removed. Just like the people in Jeremiah's day were removed. Jesus is putting them on notice that one day the house is going to be swept clean. So how should we respond to this truth? We should repent. We should repent with humility.
That was clearly what Jeremiah called people to do in his day. And if Jesus' actions are pointing to Jeremiah's words, I think the response should be the same for us. Now, it may be difficult to see the connection between Jeremiah's day or even Jesus' day and our day. The circumstances are so different. I mean, this isn't a temple. This is a meeting space for the church, right? But there are many fundamental similarities that we should not miss if we're going to rightly respond to God's Word. Let me put it plainly. You can't expect heaven if you're living like hell, no matter how much religion you've got in your life. There is no refuge from God's coming judgment in religious ritual. Now I know we don't practice religious rituals like they did at the temple or even like Roman Catholics do today. But evangelicals have plenty of our own rituals, don't we? And none of them will keep you safe when Jesus comes to clean house if you have not repented of your sins and trusted in Christ for salvation. The prayer that you prayed as a child, which I'm thankful for, it won't provide refuge for you if you are living an unrepentant life today. Your baptism won't provide refuge if you have not died to your sins and been raised with Christ through rebirth. Your attendance at church, your giving to the church, your serving in the church, none of it will save you. All of these things are good things that real Christians do on Sunday. But if your life from Monday to Saturday shows your true colors, that you don't really love God, you don't really love His people, don't take refuge in your association with the church. Those who enter the kingdom of God are those who become like little children that's what we've been learning for over a month now. The people the religious leaders push aside are the ones who are coming in to the kingdom of heaven. They are like the blind. They are like the lame. People who realize that they have no reason for pride because they are completely dependent upon God's grace found in Jesus' work as a Savior but also people that realize that Jesus is Lord. And so they surrender to Him in humble repentance. Then they bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. And that leads me to the third symbolic action in this passage. The cursing of the fig tree. What this symbolizes is that Jesus will come to judge the unrepentant. The fruitless fig tree 
represents a lack of repentance. Why do I say that? What did John the Baptist say when he began his ministry speaking of the kingdom of God? He says, repent and bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. What did Jesus say about those who do not bear fruit? That they will be cut down like a fruitless tree and thrown into the fire. We just looked at Jeremiah 7 and his call to repentance. You can turn over to Jeremiah 8 and see that he calls a lack of repentance a fruitless fig tree. He names it that way explicitly. So what Jesus is doing in Matthew 21 is pointing to all of these things. He's saying that the lack of repentance he sees in Jerusalem is like that fig tree. Therefore, it will wither and die. Jeremiah, I mean Jerusalem, will once more be overthrown by an external force by God's direction. The temple will once more be destroyed. And all of that happened in AD 70. But the same will be true for any of us who do not turn to Jesus in faith and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Jesus has been teaching throughout Matthew that external righteousness is not true fruit. Go back and review the Sermon on the Mount. It all holds together. I know it's a long book, but it is one book. True fruit comes from hearts that have been changed by God in people who have placed their trust in the Son of God, in His saving work, and who now surrender to His righteous rule. Those who do not repent, we are repeatedly told, and those who do not bear fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. This is the point I'm trying to make this morning. There are two truths that are equally true. We've elevated one of them and maybe neglected the other. The first is that Jesus is a gracious Savior and we should rejoice in that. Amen? But do we also grasp that He is a righteous judge? And that should lead us to repentance. Both are true. But this repentance that I've just spoken of was the response of the previous action. What's the response to Jesus cursing the fig tree? I think it's this. That we should pray for the kingdom to come. Why do I say this? Well, in verse 20, the disciples want to know how the fig tree withered at once. The obvious answer is Jesus had the authority to make it wither, but that's not the answer that He gives. Instead, He applies His actions to His disciples. He says, if you have faith and don't doubt, you'll not only be able to curse fig trees, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea. It will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. 
Jesus is clearly speaking of the power of prayer, but I think the application is more specific than that. Notice he says, if you say to this mountain, which mountain? I think he's speaking of the mountain that they're on right then, which is the temple mount. He seems to be saying God's judgment is coming on this temple mount, on Jerusalem. But it's not only going to be the result of God's action, but even the result of His disciples' prayers. The robbers who had taken refuge in the temple will be removed and God will be using His disciples' prayers to remove them. The mountain will be thrown into the sea. This is the takeaway for us. We are called to trust that what Jesus says is true and will come to pass. That one day He will bring about His kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. One day people will no longer oppose God and His people. Are you looking forward to that day? One day, there will be no more sin. Do you look forward to that day? Somebody on their prayer card last week wrote in, I look forward to the day when there is no more sin. Me too. I can't wait for that day. But have you ever thought about the fact that your prayers are used by God to bring about that day. Read the book of Revelation. You will see this. The vindication of the saints, the judgment of those who oppose God's people happen in response to the prayers of the saints going up into the heaven, being captured, and then thrown back down onto the earth in power. I think that's what Jesus is speaking of here. God will use our prayers to bring about His purposes on earth. Purposes of joyful salvation, but His purposes of judgment as well. So in light of Jesus' kingdom, let's be people on our knees who pray, let Your kingdom come. Let Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Pray for the salvation of God's enemies. That's first. But let us also pray for His kingdom to come in judgment on all things that are set in opposition to His kingdom. For only when Jesus returns in righteous judgment will we come to know true joy. Joy to the world. When sins and sorrows no more grow, only then will His blessings truly flow. Only then will there be joy to the world. So let us pray for the King to come. Father, these are joyful truths that we have learned and yet at the same time hard truths. I pray these actions would get our attention. Draw us to faith in Christ. Draw us to repent of our sins. 
We need your help to work in us the things that are pleasing to you. So would you work? Come, Lord Jesus. Come. Amen.